listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. The difficulty in obtaining accurate information amid COVID-19 has prompted some to call this moment in our country an infodemic. While the stakes have never been higher, this challenge to get the facts during the pandemic is really just an extension of the world we have been living in since around 2016, when phrases like fake news and post-truth first began to enter the American lexicon. So during the pandemic, when the need for truth is so critical, how exactly did this issue become even worse? And what can we do about it? Our next guest says it starts with teaching experts and students alike how to translate their fact-based ideas and findings into persuasive and easy-to-understand campaigns. Justin Guest is a professor of policy and government at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government, and he's also the author of a new book called Mass Appeal, Communicating Policy Ideas in Multiple Media. Justin, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. So briefly summarize for us the infodemic that you have seen unfold in the months since the pandemic first began to spread here. Yeah, you know, the infodemic of the pandemic is not that different from the infodemic that preceded it. Basically, we are having a a shortage of some of the most important scientific facts, uh, some of the best research out there. Uh, a shortage of its availability for mainstream listeners, mainstream readers. And that is a problem for everyone because we can't make smart decisions, whether it's as parents, as consumers, as professionals, if we don't know the facts. Hmm. And one of the things that is really difficult right now, I think, is that there is political capital in the idea of spreading inaccurate information and perhaps more political capital than before, or maybe it's that that political capital is being spent at higher levels than it was before. I mean, you have the White House and the president of the United States saying things that are untrue because he believes there is political gain for him in spreading lies. Yeah, there there have always been advantages to holding information, and governors, uh, small g governors, have always had more access to information by virtue of their political positions and power. But really, until recently, we have witnessed Democratic politicians uh, engage in what politicos call spin, which is basically an interpretation of facts, an interpretation of data, rather than simply making things up. And what we have witnessed recently from the White House has been literally making things up. I mean, there's there's no basis for, you know, the idea that bleach, you know, swallowing bleach is going to actually help prevent or or treat coronavirus, that infrared rays are going to reach into your lungs. I mean, this is the most egregious uh, example, but it's on a gradient of a variety of untruths that have been communicated from the highest echelons of power. Mm. Um, but even beyond the White House, there is there are enormous misinformation campaigns because uh, evil, nefarious uh, entities have realized that influencing people with um, purported facts is advantageous to their political or economic agendas. And we have to be really cautious about this. Hmm. Uh, You also say that people who are armed with the truth and prepared to share that truth need to do it in a more effective and 
accessible way. So let's talk about what the disconnect between experts is and their ability to get truthful messages out in a way that lands really squarely with people. It's a great question, Stephen. You know, experts occupy a, a kind of alternative universe. You know, they talk usually with other experts. They publish in publications, in journals uh, that are read by other experts. They spend enormous amounts of time alone, whether it's in laboratories or crunching numbers on computers or studying in the basement of a library. And then finally, at the end of all this uh, war, hard work in isolation, uh, they're asked, okay, leave, it, leave the seclusion of your research and now share it accessibly with a bunch of non-experts in a broader society. And there's a huge disconnect there because most experts are not trained to do so, nor are they really accustomed to do so in their everyday lives. And so, so much of that really brilliant information, all those great findings and conclusions are lost either because they're not translated or because the translation is not actually accessible and understandable by the rest of us. Mm. And and so really it's a matter of changing the approach or the language, I guess, that, that you use if you are an expert and have truth and are fighting against somebody who is spreading is spreading lies. It's it's that you've got to sort of adopt the tactics, I guess, of of the disinformation campaigns we see. Whatever people think about President Donald Trump, I think there's one thing that we must acknowledge, and that is that he is a very clear communicator. No one really ever doubts what is on the president's mind. Mm. He makes himself exceptionally clear by using very uh, succinct and clear language that everyone can understand. And obviously that language can be used for uh, to communicate these untruths that we're talking about. But the fact of the matter is he communicates clearly no matter what he's communicating. Unfortunately, experts do not have that communication skill set. And it's something that we all need to learn to do better so that we can actually communicate the real information, the authentic evidence-based information to everybody as easily as it is to understand the messages coming from the president's Twitter account. Hmm. The second factor, though, is that we also have to be incentivized to do that. Experts are not really rewarded for communicating their ideas in the sort of halls of academia, in the halls of laboratories and, 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 and science companies, and even, in, even in, in, in some think tanks. You know, it's about influence in think tanks, and it's about um, elite publications in universities. It's not, you know, your promotion is not based on how many people you reach. Um, I, I want to talk a little about your book, Mass Appeal, and what you're counseling in this book, what you're telling us about how we get back to a space where truth has more currency and value in the conversations that we're having. I think that the first step is for experts to look in the mirror and say, I had a role in producing this post-fact world this alternative truth world, this infodemic, because I have not exerted enough effort or developed the skills to actually communicate my ideas broadly. Mm. And I think once we realize that we have a role to play, um, I think that we can then take steps to get better. And if I was going to, to, to boil down the counseling into a nutshell here, um, it is that less is more in so many circumstances. If you can 
real mastery of a subject matter is the ability to boil things down to core essential truths that are easy to understand and simple to understand. And I think that that's where the real um, uh, edge is when it comes to knowledge these days. Now, from the public's perspective, we can all also do a better job of seeking out this information, reading more broadly, consulting more information, looking to, to actually um, corroborate, to confirm what we learn uh, from one publication by reading another, um, actually looking into things by, by re- doing a little bit of research ourselves. We can work hard, but the idea that we have to work hard to get access to easy, to, to, to important information is not a good plan for the future. Mm-hmm. It should be easy for everyone and accessible for everyone to get access to the right information, particularly during times like these. I also wonder what you make of the platforms that now shape the national conversations or narratives about things like COVID-19 or other controversial issues. Social media and the internet and and the digital interactions that we go through each day, I mean, we're really still in the first generation of those platforms as as accessible to everybody and the way that everybody communicates. And I've, if we go back and think of the development of other platforms, say the telegraph or uh, or the telephone or uh, the other things that have that have you know throughout history made it easier for us to communicate with each other, they also have gone through these kinds of infancy periods where truth was less appealing on them than than fat than uh, than lies or or untruths. Do you think that's part of what is going on here, and that we just in some ways have to wait for these platforms to mature? in a way that that values truth more. I mean, it, it seems that all of those other platforms came to newer spaces, to better spaces over time, and when they were new, were vulnerable or more vulnerable to this kind of misinformation. I think that the best example is probably the newspaper, mm-hmm. because the newspapers, you, you have this concept of a tabloid and the old, what was referred to as the yellow press, um, that basically tried to manipulate public opinion as much as possible. Now, you know, truthfully, any kind of information delivery system is, is somehow maybe, you know, biased in some sort of way. There's no such thing as true objectivity. Mm-hmm. But eventually, people developed a way of certifying these newspapers, of actually, you know, recognizing quality uh, or lack thereof over time. They became more sensitive to differences uh, between them, and then the cream rised, uh, rose to the top. And so that eventually could happen where we have some kind of certification system for websites where we begin to recognize where we can trust certain websites and which we cannot trust, which may be more subject to disinformation, and you know, a way of sort of authenticating the information that we learn. As you say, we're still early in these days, but the one advantage that I think the world had with newspapers that we don't have with the Internet is that it cost a lot of money to open a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a barrier to entry for any kind of dodgy or shady operation. You weren't going to last that long. Um, whereas with the Internet, the barriers to entry are effectively minimal. Uh, they're, they're almost nothing. So anyone can get involved, portray themselves as a legitimate uh, news deliverer, information holder, and try to deliver it to others 
And unfortunately, consumers at this point do not have easy ways of verifying that information um, beyond doing the work to corroborate the ideas that they learn. Mm -hmm. Okay, Justin Guest, Professor of Policy and Government at the George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government, author of Mass Appeal, Communicating Policy Ideas in Multiple Media. It was great to have you back here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Anytime, Stephen. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow as we continue our candidate interviews. We are going to talk with Oakland County Treasurer Andy Meisner, who is running for Oakland County Executive, and Detroit City Council President Brenda Jones, who is challenging Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.